Welcome to Red Lips and Eye Rolls. I'm Katara, and this is my show where I'll be encouraging you to live a life full of power and belonging. My work is to not only give you tools to belong to yourself, but to also cultivate cultures where Black, Indigenous, and women of color belong. I'm an expert eye roller that loves a red lip, that will be having some great conversations with some awesome people. I'll also be dropping some wisdom on you and giving you tips, tricks, and tools to live the life that you desire and the life that you deserve. So sit back and enjoy the show. So glad you tuned into this episode of Red Lips and Eye Rolls. I wanted to take this episode to share my mission of this podcast and why it's taking a shift. I started this podcast as a resource for women to gain tools to cultivate and activate their own unique power, and I did that all of last year. What began to happen in me, what I was noticing, is a greater desire to amplify women of color. And in being a black woman, I've experienced systems of oppression in my own life, and I've seen other black women and brown women's voices, work, art, books be oppressed by those same systems. I've also been greatly bothered over the years by how underrepresented Black, Indigenous, and women of color are in media, in literary art, in the corporate world, in tech, and more. And so this has led me to evaluate my own content, my own work, and what I'm producing. And when I did, I started to reimagine what this podcast could be. And so I've decided to cultivate this space for Black, Indigenous, and women of color's voices, their art, their books, their knowledge, their wisdom, and more, so that we can all learn from them. And so this episode is a story of my why, why I'm transitioning, why I'm embarking on this new path, this new journey. And I want to welcome all of you to come along with me as I discover, as I learn, as I grow, and as I unfold into more of who I am, more of my purpose, more of my mission. Listen, I believe we will be so inspired by the content on this podcast. Now, I want to invite you to join me on this new journey. Enjoy the show. I wanted to take this episode to chat a little bit about where I'm at with this podcast and also just with the things that I'm creating and places and spaces that I am curating and cultivating. I've made a pivot with my mission and I wanted to talk to you as the listener today about how that came about and why. Um, And I think it's important to talk about this stuff. And so I'm excited that you're here and that you're listening. So we got to throw it all the way back to when I grew up. And many of you know part of my story, my childhood. I've talked on previous episodes about my childhood and being abandoned as a baby. And and so I haven't talked to you, though, a lot about my grandmother and my mother. So I just wanted to share a little bit about 
the amazing home that I grew up with and the black women that raised me and how that plays a huge role um, now that I'm 47, I'm approaching 48 next month and how that's played a huge role in shaping me and in me kind of coming back to uh, my mission and the pivot that I'm making in my mission. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my grandmother, Mary, and my mother, Betty. After I was abandoned at the hospital my by my bio mother, who is white, um, my bio mother, from what I understand, well, I know she was pregnant by a black man, and I don't know that that was accept well I know it wasn't acceptable culturally and so therefore I that played a role in her decision to leave me at the hospital unfortunately I was delivered to the house of Betty and Mary and they welcomed me into their home and I became a part of a beautiful family a non-traditional family because my mother lived with my grandmother Um, which was not uncommon in our community, in the black community, for families to pull their resources together to survive. And so I got delivered to Betty and Mary's house. My mother was a single mom. Again, my, my grandmother and her lived together, but my mom was never married. And so she was a single woman and had decided to adopt a little girl a year before me. And again, my grandmother and my mother are black, and they adopted um, my sister first. Um, She is not my biological sister. She's full black. And so they adopted her. And then a year later, they had an opportunity. My mother had an opportunity to adopt me. She heard, uh, had told her aunt that she wanted to adopt her aunt was connected to the foster care system worked for the the welfare department and she had told her her aunt hey if another baby girl comes along i'd like to adopt another another girl because i want daughter cassandra to have a sister and so I came across um, my aunt's radar. And so she called my mom and, and my mom said yes. I mean, they were having a, a little bit of a challenging time finding placement for me because I, I am biracial. And so white families were hesitant to take me in because of that fact. And so were black families. But Betty wasn't hesitant at all. <laughs> I love that woman. She's amazing. She said yes. And so... Being a single woman back then, it was 1972, um, she officially adopted me in 1973. That was rare for a a black single woman to adopt children. Um, And I remember her sharing the story. She shared it with me so many times, how impressed the judge was with her and her willingness to adopt, which is so cool. And so it was a very non-traditional home. I, my gran- I, I say all the time I had two mothers growing up, my grandmother and my mom. And my mom, you know, provided for us. She had to work and provide for us. And I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about that here in a moment. But it was, it was a great home to grow up in. And 
it's interesting now that I'm in the place that I am today and the learning that I've experienced in the last several years and just a learning from my my life experiences that these women have played such major pivotal role in my life and they're these strong black women and amazing women and I'm excited to share a little bit more about them so my with you today so my grandmother dropped out of school in seventh grade to help provide for her family so she never graduated high school and she got pregnant with my mom Betty and raised her for a short short stint of time while living with her mother so my grandmother lived with her mother which would be my great-grandmother with my mom, Betty, until she was around five or six. And my grandmother was able to work as a housekeeper for a, a local family. She would clean their house. She would do their laundry while they were at work. And she would be present at the home when their kids got home from school and would start dinner get dinner ready. So she kind of took care of the the household for this family. And in doing that, she was able to earn enough money to move out of her mother's home with my mom, with her daughter, Betty. And she was able to start renting, renting a home. And with that job, I think my mom, I talked to my mom today, I called her and was just asking her all these questions. And um, I'm like, how much did granny make working for that family? And she made $25 a week back then. Would have been the late, would have been 40s. She made $25 a week and she was able to pull her resources together to get this, to rent this home to raise my mom in. My grandmother's goal was for my mother to graduate high school because she didn't get to do that. So that was her biggest goal. Let me get Betty through high school. Like I want her to graduate from high school. And my mom did. My mom graduated from high school. And after graduating, my mom went into the workforce immediately. Um, She and my grandmother both worked and she never moved out of the house. She never went on to further her education graduating high school was a big deal. (laughs) So they celebrated that. And again, she went right into working and then pulling their incomes together to survive. What's really beautiful about this story is that they were both working at a local nursing home and they were renting this home from a white gentleman who had property in the, he had property and homes in the black neighborhood. And They were renting from him, and my mom told me um, today, I didn't know this part of the story, that he wanted to to, uh, start pulling out of the community, so getting rid of property, because there were, it was a black community, and she said that there was, it was, quote unquote, being considered the not good part of town. And so he approached my mom and said, hey, would you be interested in purchasing the home? that you're living in. And my mom was like, oh, there's no way we could ever do that. <laughs> like, we can't afford that. We can't f- afford to purchase a home. That, was ne- that wasn't even on her radar. She was just grateful that she had a place to live and that they could afford the rent. And he said, you know, well, what if I um, sold it to you on contract? And so my mom got curious and was like, well, what would that look like? He said, well, I would need $100 down um, as a down payment. And then 
you can pay me $65 a month until you pay the house off. And so I think he sold the house to her for $8,000. And so she said yes. And uh, well, at first she was like, I don't know if I can come up with a down payment. And she and my grandmother um, every year got bonuses from the nursing home that they worked in. And they he said, how about I keep your bonus, your bonuses, and that can be the down payment. And so my mom agreed and my grandmother agreed and they went into purchasing their own home together, which is to me just the coolest story. And that's the house I grew, I grew up in. That's the home that I got delivered to as an abandoned baby. I, I talk about it all the time, like 7070 Jefferson Street was a house I got dropped off to. And that's the house I grew up in. And at times my mother... You know, she had to work two and three jobs to provide for us. And my grandmother stopped working. So my mom took on extra jobs. And the reason why my grandmother stopped working was because she wanted to stay. My mom wanted her to stay home with us so that we didn't have to go to daycare, so that we didn't have to get babysitters and so that other people weren't taking care of us. My mom was very protective and um they thought that that was kind of the best case scenario. And so my grandmother stayed home, which caused my mom to have to work more. She took care of me and my sister. We never had a babysitter. Every, you know, when we started before, even before school, like we just were home all the time, um, safe and well-fed. Let me tell you, the best food, ugh, the smells, the aroma that was coming from that house, the cooking, the barbecuing, the... Uh, Great food. My I'm swallowing because my mouth is watering right now, reminiscing about my grandmother's fried chicken and her, oh my gosh, her cobblers and her cookies she would bake for us. We were well fed, let me tell you. Uh, this is funny because it's. I'm remembering. I told Brenna this story the other day. I, I'm remembering about a time when I I begged my grandmother. I was like, I want to take my lunch to school. I was probably in second or third grade. Please let me take my lunch to school. People carry their lunch. It's so cool. I want to carry my lunch, and she would tell me, No, sissy, they have food for you there. No, no, no. And then one day she broke down and let me take my lunch to school. She packed it for me. I had no idea what she packed. It was lunchtime. I got my little bag. I didn't have a cute little lunchbox. I just had this bag with my food in it. And I went to the lunchroom and I was like, I don't have to stand in line and get my lunch. I get to go sit down, open my bag. And I start unpacking my lunch. And my grandmother had packed me a piece of fried chicken wrapped in some foil. Now, I was in third grade and all the other little kids around me were like, Cute little peanut butter and jelly sandwiches cut, you know, the diagonal cut, real cute and cute little containers or a little ham sandwich, turkey sandwich. And sis was over here with a big old piece of fried chicken, big old piece of fried chicken. And I remember being so embarrassed. But looking back, I'm like, oh, I had the hook up. I had the hook up. Like that was a great a great lunch. So anyway, just a little side note, just a little side note about my lunch. But the home that my mom and grandmother purchased, again, was in the black neighborhood. So all of our neighbors were black. The dime store up the street, the penny saver was owned by blacks. The local clubs were owned by blacks. The community center that I regularly attended was uh, black ran and it was for black kids. And 
I learned so much from my grandmother, from my mother. I also learned so much from the community. I, I recognized pretty early in my life, though, that there were disparities. There is this beautiful thing that I would experience, but then I would go to school and realize that there are disparities between me and the other kids, the white kids that I attended school with. And so I experienced racism as a kid and microaggressions and watched my mother experience racism. She would come home and tell me stories. She was a a nurse's assistant, an aide, and she would tell me on so many occasions how she would walk into a room and to, you know, take care of a a older white man or older white woman and how they would refuse. They would demand that she leave the room because she was black and would call her out of her name and call her the N-word and just refuse to be cared for by a black woman and how she would come home with a migraine headache because of the stress of that and how she would report it and that, you know, there were there was nothing that they really could do. And they would have to the only thing they could do was like remove her from that area or say, don't don't worry about it. You don't have to go back in that room. And the weight of that that she would experience and and my grandmother watching her experience racism and microaggressions as well and and also my sister my sister again she, I'm biracial we're not biological sisters she's full black and she's got a lot of intersections happening she's black she's female and she's gay And so I've watched her experience racism and how that's impacted her and brought trauma into her life. And even in my community, there was, I saw and experienced colorism and being lighter skinned and, you know, how darker skinned and lighter skinned people sometimes within our own community, there was discrimination between groups of people. And so, you know, just trying to navigate all of that as a kid, you know, it impacts you. It impacts you, but it also shapes you. Like I, when I say impact you, like I'm immediately thinking in a negative way, which are, you know, the racism and microaggressions, of course. But there's so much beauty and richness just within my own house with my mom and my grandmother and my sister, just so much learning and growing and shaping and molding of who I am happened in that house on Jefferson Street that my mom and grandmother put their resources together to purchase. So much evolving happened and has happened then is happening now. You know, it's it's a continuing, I call it an unfolding of, of who I am and returning back to my truest, most authentic self. But trying to navigate all of that and how how do I practice allyship for myself now? You know, the, the learning that I'm doing as an anti-racism learner, I'm realizing like I have been in so many scenarios as many Black, Indigenous, and women of color have been where I have learned how to ignore or learn how to look, turn an eye, turn away from racism and just be like, whatever, they're ignorant. But in everything I'm learning, I'm learning how to be a better ally for my own self and a better advocate for myself as well as for my sister who's Black and gay. 
because I haven't always done that well. I haven't been a great, practiced great allyship for her. And also for my daughters, like having to navigate that and do that while in a brown body and experiencing your own microaggressions and then trying to show up for yourself, show up for your sister, show up for your mother, your grandmother, show up for the community and sh- and show up for my daughters who are brown babes. <laughs> I've got the cutest brown babes, my kids. How to advocate for them, my brown girls who went to a predominantly white school in elementary and junior high. You know, many times they were the only brown girls in their classrooms. You know, just how to how to do that, how to how to, you know, address things and not ignore them. And and in everything I'm learning, it's like I'm kind of revisiting my journey and realizing like, oh, man, like I could have showed up better there for that person or I could have shown up better there for her. I could have shown up better for myself. I hope you're enjoying this episode and we'll get back to it in just a sec. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button on this podcast so you know when a new episode drops because I have a great one dropping in just a few weeks. I sat down with Camille Dundas, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of an online magazine, buyblacks.com. This magazine is ranked the number one black online magazine in all of Canada. Camille's also a public speaker on the topic of equity and inclusion. She's known for dropping some disruptive truths on stage and online about why inclusion without intersectionality creates a space where good intentions go to die. Listen, it's a great conversation. Make sure you subscribe so you know when it drops. Now, let's get back to our conversation. And, you know, it's a reckoning that's happening in me. It is a reckoning, and it's a beautiful reckoning. And, um... It's a it's a it's a beautiful unfolding while it's been hard to face some stuff like dang guitar you weren't you weren't showing up for yourself in that way but we've all been conditioned by these systems of oppression that have oppressed black indigenous and people of color and we we we've all been conditioned so we all kind of submit to the system that is oppressing I've submitted to the system Black and brown people submit to the system really because we're we're so conditioned that we submit to the system that's hurting us. And so I've had to have a reckoning with that. And then what do I do with that now? I remember kind of talking about this on my episode with Layla, having, um, you know, even people ask me, what am I? <laughs> you know, wh- what are you? Like, um, and what they're asking, I, I said this on the episode, and Layla said to me, she said, yeah, they're asking you that so they, I, they can identify what race you belong to so that they know how to treat you. <laughs> I was like, oh, damn, sis. I never looked at it like that. I always gave the people the benefit of the doubt, um, but really not necessarily consciously, but maybe subconsciously. Um, this underlining bias, they're trying to figure out like, who are you so that I know, like, what racial group can I like, what grouping can I put you in? So then I know how to, I know how to treat you. I know if, you know, 
yeah, how to treat you. This this brings up a memory in me as well. Being in college, I remember a white guy wanted to take me out on a date. And he started chatting with me and come to find out he thought I was Italian. He thought I was Italian. And when he realized I was black, he was like, oh, yeah, I can't take you out. My family would never have it. I can't date a black girl. This is not like, no. And I was like, oh, wow. Like if I was Italian and that's the that's the interesting dynamic with being raised in a black community by black women in a black home in a black family, identifying as black, but my biologically I'm mixed. (laughs) Biologically, my skin's lighter than my mother's. My skin's lighter than my sister's. My skin's lighter than my grandmother. And so I go out into the world and there are these interesting dynamics where there's um, the way our society and culture is set up. There's a level of privilege that I experience sometimes because I'm lighter skinned. So like even in that situation, having him approach me, but then realizing I'm black, it's like, no, I can't date you. Just the dynamics of all of that and working through that. You know, when my husband and I, we started a church 20 some years ago in our community and we wanted it to be like, you know, Sundays are the biggest segregated day of the week. And we wanted to create this multicultural um, place of worship. And I remember even back then, like thinking, you know, or having experiences where people would not assume specifically white people would assume that he was the leader. And they wanted to talk to him and they wanted to make appointments with him. Well, the fact was we co-founded that work. We co-pastored. We equally like shared the pastor pastoral role. And there were so many times because I was a woman and I was black that I wasn't looked at as smart enough or good enough or spiritual enough. They wanted my husband who's the white man leading, you know, like I, I want to talk to him. And so just experiencing those dynamics, just even in my own marriage, like what that's looked like. And so in this brown and this brown body of mine, I've been on quite a journey my whole life and the unpacking that I've had to do and the healing that I've had to do and the reckoning that's happening, has happened and continues to happen in me. And the unfolding of my truest, most authentic self. And as a learner, right, this whole unfolding that's happened, just, you know, I talked about being a pastor. We did that for 17 years of my adult life. We co-founded a community center that, and, and in pastoring, like I was always insisting that we got to do things like this, because if we do things like that, we're going to exclude brown and black people. (laughs) So we can't do it like that. If we do things like this, you know, brown and black people aren't going to show up. If we do things, so I was always like, I felt like I was practicing this, like uh, curating, not even practicing, but curating spaces. So brown and black bodies would show up, would come, would would experience what, what we intended for the community to experience, not just white people. And, and we co-founded a community center where we had a place for 
kids in the neighborhood where our church was located, which happened to be what they titled, the community titled the inner city. And so we created this community center where kids could come after school because some of them didn't have anywhere to go after school and they were running the streets and getting in trouble. And so we we built this space for them, this community center, which was so fun and such a beautiful time. And as I also was a director of culture for a company and, and you know, doing that for a while. And in, in all of that, I've tried to practice allyship and I tried to practice ad- advocacy for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And looking back, that has been the core <laughs> of everything I've attempted to do or that I've done rooting for and shining a light on and speaking up for and creating places and spaces for black indigenous and people of color and I didn't always do it well <laughs> and I get a little emotional when I say that because I didn't always do that well and I have to reckon that in my own heart and realize that I had been conditioned by white supremacy. I have been conditioned by systems of oppression, but I didn't always do that well. But my journey has led me today to to be a coach and an author and a speaker. And a couple years ago, I, I left the corporate world and kind of started my own thing and saying, hey, I'm a speaker. I'm a coach. I'm a women's empowerment coach. I'm going to start this podcast. And the whole thing was very steeped in women's empowerment and women and coaching women and really making that decision and going forward and betting on myself and starting my own thing. And in the last several years, I've kind of like personally been on a journey and and then I like kind of have looked at like how am I how am I getting back to what I've always done, what's been at the core which is rooting and shining a light on and creating places and spaces for marginalized people. And how am I doing that now, right? Like getting back to my truest, most authentic self and how am I doing that? How am I doing that now? And asking those questions and as, as uh, uh, running my business now, how am I doing that? And so I've been gaining a clearer vision the last several years and and on what I believe my work is now, what I believe I am supposed to be doing now. And as a learner, I become a greater learner of anti-racism and how I can practice allyship and how I can practice allyship for Black, Indigenous, especially women, women of color, and how I can be a part of a narrative that can help shine that spotlight on what's not right in our world how I can be a part of a narrative, a new story that shines a light on what's not right. And in all of it, (laughs) I've just been drawn to this mission. And it's not new. (laughs) This is what I'm realizing. I'm like, oh, this isn't new, Katara. Like, you may have not been doing this as your quote unquote work. This isn't new. So in looking back on all my experiences, watching my mother's experiences, my grandmother's experiences and their lives and my sister's experiences and my two beautiful daughters and their experiences in the world. 
and also learning our true history in America and how brown, indigenous, and women of color have been oppressed, how they've been victimized, how they've been silenced and disregarded and treated as not human, how they have been portrayed in the mainstream media. I've noticed for years, for as long as I could remember, how underrepresented we are in the news, in documentaries, when they pull up the experts, sometimes you, I mean, it's more common now in the last couple years, but for a millennia, (laughs) they've been underrepresented. You wouldn't see a black woman expert. It'd be a white man, a white woman, sometimes a black man in documentaries. My husband and I would watch a full documentary and they'd have all these experts. And I'm like, why didn't they have a black woman weigh in? Like they couldn't find one. Like she didn't have any, like, What's up with that, right? So it's always bothered me. And it's always bothered me that how much I didn't know. (laughs) Even growing up in a black community with two black women raising me, how much I didn't know about the amazing women, the amazing black women, the amazing indigenous women, the amazing women of color, until I had to go dig for it. I had to go find it. I had to go find their books. I had to go find their art. I had to go find their poetry. I had to go digging for their stories. I had to go digging for the truth of America and its story and how it has truly, on purpose, silenced, disregarded, and oppressed and victimized women of color, Black women, and how these systems of oppression has kept and continues to keep these voices at bay. This isn't something that has gone away because of the civil rights movement. This isn't something that has gone away. This is something that is happening right now today. I'm watching it happen. I'm watching it play out. I'm experiencing it. And how culturally systems of oppression are keeping these voices, these beautiful stories, these rich stories, this wealth of wisdom, this wealth of knowledge, this beautiful creativity from Black, Indigenous women of color, they're keeping it at bay, these systems of oppression. And it's not that these women haven't been speaking or creating or showing up boldly in the world. It's that racism and white supremacy has blocked them from all of us, including me as a Black woman. And so all of this, all of everything that I'm saying and so much that I'm not saying, there's so much more that I could say about this. But with all of this, it's led me to my mission, what I'm doing right now and what I've chosen to do with the places and spaces that I occupy. I want to center Black, Indigenous, and women of color's voices. I want to center their stories their talents, their arts, their art, their books, their music, their businesses, and so much more. I want to curate this space, my podcast, for all of us to learn from these women, to be inspired by them, to grow from them, to learn from them. Like the times that I would sit at the kitchen table and hear my grandmother telling stories, what I learned from those stories, how I you know, showed up in the world, how I was molded and shaped from those stories. I'm sitting right now in my closet 
at a card table that my mom and my grandmother purchased (laughs) before I was born. And this card table has literally been in my life for my whole life. And I asked my mom several years ago, about five years ago, if I could have it. And she graciously said yes. And so I'm sitting in my closet shooting this podcast episode at, at the card table that my grandmother and my mom worked hard to purchase. It was an extra thing. And the same table that I sat at with my grandmother and with my mother as they, you know, chopped green beans, <laughs> you know, snapped green beans as they chopped collard greens and cleaned them as they worked puzzles and I would sit in chairs and watch them and listen to their stories and I would grow and I was learning from the richness of their life. And I think that's what I want to bring to Red Lips and Eye Rolls, those rich stories, that depth and that wealth of knowledge that is traditionally and historically been oppressed and has been kept at bay from all of us. And wow, what I'm realizing, what I've realized in the last several years is what I've been missing out on. Wow, what I've been missing out on and I want and what I've been able to experience and and even more that I want to experience. And I want to share that with all of us. Now, that's what I've decided to do with Red Lips and Eye Rolls is to curate this place this space for those voices. Now, historically, when a black person creates something and features black people, sometimes white people assume that that place and space isn't for them. So I just wanted to address that right now, that I am a black woman who has and is curating this space and this place to highlight Black, Indigenous, and women of color to center them, to center Black, Indigenous, and women of color. And I'm doing that not just for Black people while and Indigenous people and people of color. It's not just for, I'm not creating and curating this space just for us. I'm curating this space and I, and I want to emphasize that it's for everyone, And this idea that a black woman creating something or curating a space with other black, brown, indigenous women is somehow just for us. I want to rewrite that, that narrative and say, you as a white woman, you as a white man, you as a white person can learn and should be learning from these voices that this in curating this this podcast This is an opportunity for you to learn from voices that you may not have ever heard from, right? And to hear something that may spark something in you and inspire you and grow you or challenge you or make you say, hey, hold on, I need to pivot here. I need to change this. And I also want to curate this this space because we haven't appropriately grieved um, for us and with us. And I want to invite my audience who is white (laughs) to start that journey of learning from, 
experiencing and growing from um, the wisdom and the wealth and the richness of Black, Indigenous, and women of color, and also to hear the truth of America's story around Black, Indigenous, and women of color, and the oppression, (laughs) and the victimization, and all of that, and to grieve appropriately for us and with us. And so that's what this is going to be. This is going to be a podcast that's for everyone, but I'm choosing to curate it so that we learn and grow from the voices and the bodies that have historically and culturally been disregarded and not been valued and, and not been looked at as an expert or as a person that can teach me something or I can grow from. So you'll be hearing more stories from these awesome, amazing women, from Black, Indigenous, and women of color on this podcast. And it's my hope that we will all expand, Ah, that we'll all expand and then we'll all grow from what we curate here at Red Lips and Eye Rolls. I'm so glad you tuned into this episode. It's my hope that you'll keep tuning in and again, that you'll continue to grow from the content that I'm curating at Red Lips and Eye Rolls. Keep tuning in, keep sharing, keep liking, (laughs) keep telling your friends about it. We're going to continue to grow and we're going to continue to expand. And it's my hope that, that you'll keep tuning in and that we can share and shine a huge spotlight and to center Black, Indigenous, and women of color. Until next time. If you want to see what I'm up to in between episodes, you can follow me on my social channels. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter. Um, You can also find me at KatarMcCarty.com. Yeah, go follow me. I'm always dropping some wisdom and pictures and info and all the things. Go check me out. This episode of Red Lips and Eye Rolls was produced by Green Records in New Braunfels, Texas. The studio is situated on Lee Pan land.